The software industry has a severe lack of women. There are numerous root causes of this diversity problem. Families do not encourage women to enter math and science. The media portrays most programmers as white males. Our industry often picks up on the signals of the broader society and perpetuates them. Reversing this trend of low female involvement in computer science and STEM education could have tremendous positive impact on our society as a whole. And Janine Bakehausen joins the show today to discuss how she is taking action to improve the pipeline of young women entering computer science. Janine Bakehausen is the director of Adroit Research and is the founder of the Tech Girls Movement. Janine, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Happy to be here. The software industry has a severe lack of women, and the focus of this episode is to understand why that is and how it is changing. So I want to start off by asking you, what is the, the current state of women in technology and where are we going? Great question. The current state of women in tech is we actually need more women in tech. So we've been in this place for quite a while and the conversation is gaining momentum, which is great, but we need to see more action in actually putting processes and systems in place to get more diversity in our tech workforce. And it's really not just about women, it's about diversity in general and essentially having the people who are building our technology every day actually being part of those development teams. So uh, we need some action and there is lots of um, efforts in this area, but we need to coordinate a little better and, and move things along much quicker, I think. Is the problem that women are entering technology fields and then leaving, or is it about the fact that they just never enter technology in the first place? Excellent question. I think it's a bit of both. So certainly uh, the women who do come into the tech industry Many are finding it's not a very welcoming environment, mostly because they are in the minority and the, the environment's not set up for them. So it's not really too surprising. But certainly there is a big pipeline problem in that we're not getting young people to come into technology careers. And so we have these gaps in the pipeline, as we call it. And so, so we have these leaks. And so we are losing young women so we lose them around year four at school so around nine or ten years old they get turned off by stereotypes in the media uh, by the curriculum and by a number of different things so the research says we lose them there but if we do manage to keep them then we we attract them into an industry that's actually not a great place to be right now so uh, we need we need to change on a number of different levels so let's start from the bottom of the pipeline we have this idea that girls are not interested in math and science, and that's why they get these stereotyping signals from the media and from their family, from society, that they should not go into math and science, that it is something to be discouraged from, and they get this very early on. Why, historically, why do we have this idea that girls are not interested in math and science? It's funny that you asked that question because actually just by saying that that question, girls are not interested in science and math, we're kind of putting, we're perpetuating that view that they're not. And and I think the more we say that, the more girls are, are disinterested. So uh, this is quite a recent phenomenon, to be honest. It really started around well, the well, 1980s. To, to be clear, to be clear, I, I asked the question, why do we have the idea? I don't actually <laughs> believe that girls are not interested Good. in math and science. 
Good, 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 good. Absolutely. I like that response. So, and I, you know, I want to have a bit of fun with this as well, because I think we need to uh, sort of work together and think outside the box a little bit here. So, I mean, if you think about it, the first programmer in the world was a woman. So we have Ada Lovelace back in the 1840s. And so we're talking 170 years ago. And then the women have participated in quite a number of significant areas. We have Hedy Lamar, who created spread spectrum, the basis for Wi-Fi that we use every day. We've got Grace Hopper, who in the Navy in the 1950s invented the compiler and literally changed the way we talk to computers. So women have had a very strong role in creating our technology history, even though we don't hear very much of them. But certainly there's a discussion around the 1980s. The PC was introduced. It was marketed as the boys' toy, and it was always generally put in the boys' room to play with. It was not really encouraged for young women to participate as part of that. And I think, to be honest, it goes back even earlier. Um, I know when I grew up, I was given dolls to play with and boys were given things to build. And so if you build, you build spatial skills where you don't build those kinds of skills playing with dolls necessarily. So I think it's, it's right from very, very early ages, we start to ingrain this unconscious bias. So certainly we have this, we have this in our society, we have this psychosis that, that is perpetuated by the way that we present math and science to women and the way that that we perceive the way that we display women in the media as not being interested in math and science but i'm i'm really curious like is there some strange historical circumstance that led to this weird subjugation like i don't know how how far you've looked back in history like have have you come to any conclusions about why this why this dynamic between men and women has perpetuated this way? I think going as far back as we can, there was a lot of equality in this area where women had the opportunity. And I think a lot of it is really just about opportunity um, and being given access to um, these kinds of tools uh, to to actually play with. And play is such an important part of this. And um, so, again, I mean, think about your own household growing up and where was the technology and who was responsible for it. And I guess now that we live in this technological age, it's ever more present and more, much more than it had been in the past. So, um, But if you think back to even, say, World War II, uh, women were the code breakers. They developed the very first computers, the ENIAC and so on, and the Colossus, and they were actually fundamentally part of making computers and technology the way we have it today. So so I think really there's been this shift in society more than anything that we, we really do say that uh, these are the feminine jobs and these are the masculine jobs. I mean, think about teaching and nursing, for instance. They're very feminine type jobs. And we, only because we've created that as a society, we say that that's the way that it should be. So I think it's it's very much socially constructed, meaning we have constructed this view of the world, which isn't necessarily flattering. It's not actually flattering for men in a lot of ways either. I have to say, I have a lot of male students come to me, university students and say, well, actually, this isn't a good image for us. Everyone thinks we're the sort of the strange, unusual ones as well. And, and it's not, we're not respected really for what we do in a lot of instances it's only when you get the high profile you know we've made a million bucks we've got this great product that it actually starts to say oh okay we think they're kind of cool but actually on the ground level it's not seen to be a very cool thing for guys either so we've talked about the historical aspects in the bottom of the pipeline now i'm curious about you know you mentioned that even if a woman makes it through the um the thicket of negative signaling the tech industry itself can be a very oppressive place 
it can be an impressive place for for basically anybody who does not fit the mold of a a white male, frankly. Um, mm-hmm. un- unless you're in, you know, at least that's in the, that's the case in America. Um, so, Absolutely. What, so what what are the problems that that manifest because of that diversity problem? Because of that, uh, the 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 imbalance in diversity. Yeah, yeah, really great question. And like, I, how I does it create an oppressive environment? I think that happens on a number of levels, both structurally and individually. So I think on a structural level, it's quite difficult for uh, minorities, particularly women, to actually move their way up through the management levels because it's um, taking time out of work for family reasons um, because women, even though men are taking these roles on more, women are still the the primary uh, providers in the household, like as caregivers. So I guess that's not valued very much. In many instances, so um, those work environments essentially are set up for white men, essentially. So they're not set up to take time out for family challenges and and, um, all of those kinds of things that we need to be doing as part of everyday life. So I think women are automatically disadvantaged because they're taking the time out of the workforce. And I guess if you think about the the pay gap, um, so if women are getting paid at least 20% less than men in most instances, so if the choice comes where um, a a couple has a a child, who's going to go back to work? Well, it's always the the male that will go back to work because he's always going to earn more. So again, the default becomes the woman doesn't have that opportunity. So I think the structures that we actually have in place on a societal level and an organizational level and and even policy level has – has long-term ramifications for the decisions that we actually make and so and then on the individual level women aren't so good at negotiating that's quite well known so women will often come into a new role and not negotiate for their salary whereas a male will more often negotiate their salary so the male will start higher in that wage and so they're always going to be that much that little bit higher so the woman will never actually catch up so I think again no matter how well we tell women to negotiate some of these structures may still actually challenge us as well. And with the negotiation part, I find that a particularly uh, difficult problem because the, you know, ideally, you know, you would just say, oh, you're a woman, you you should negotiate more. But we have, we obviously have these, uh, you know, other societal oppressions around and, and societal expectations around how a woman should act and this this is this is like you know you're not supposed to negotiate this is why you know the type of things that Sheryl Sandberg talks about in lean in where you know you have this you have the same uh you have the same type of person uh and if if there's a if there's a male name associated with how this person talks then the person is described as confident and then if there's a female name associated with how this person talks they're described as brusque or uh, you know whatever whatever like subtly um, negative term they use to describe a woman who is assertive and mm-hmm. is is trying to carry her point forward with some level of of confidence, um, and so it's like it creates this horrible double bind where you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, and you know what 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 I what I really think is important to highlight in this discussion is that. It, this is not an issue that just impacts the women. It's this is a societal problem because there is a utilitarian benefit if more diversity is created in technology. If we get more women involved in tech, we I mean we need more of of every 
every mind, every you know, basically everything, every subset of people that is not a white male uh, in tech because we need a wider variety of ideas. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe you can bring that point home further. Explain the advantages that we will experience as a society if we get a more encouraging in environment for women to join the technology workforce. Uh, I love everything that you just said, and you're completely spot on with absolutely all of that. And I think the word bossy is the one that comes out with women in those um, right. leadership positions. Yes, and um, and you're absolutely right. So it's not just what's happening within the tech industry. It's those wider societal views of the the, yeah, the place that women have in society and, and other kinds of minorities as well. So I think you're absolutely right there. So I think there's absolute value in ha- having an opportunity for everyone to participate. Like you say, I mean, if you have everyone who looks the same, they're all going to think the same and then we don't get any kind of innovation or creativity from that. So um, there's evidence, for instance, that by having a female on a team that's putting together, that applies for a patent, there's something like 25% more likely to actually get the patent if there's a female on the team, simply because they've actually thought of other ideas outside of the box. And you have something like 40 times percent, sorry, 40% more likely to get your patent cited by having a female on the team. I mean, that's just one very specific example. If we talk organizationally, um, organization uh, boards for companies perform better if they have diversity. They have better, companies have better financial performance, better company reputation, and there's endless sort of um, documented um, benefits for companies to have a diverse workforce. And I think in society in general, I mean, everyone deserves the opportunity to participate. And so, I mean, I have young girls, particularly sort of seven, eight years old, asking if they can participate. And and why would they ask? I mean, for a male, that just simply probably wouldn't happen. They would just jump in and start doing it. So for me, it's about making it normalized from the very young age to say it's okay for everyone to participate in tech and build tech. And actually, I think a lot of it comes down to confidence. And I don't know if you're aware of some of the research around stereotype threats. So for instance, in the classroom, if we get, for instance, a young female to write her gender on a maths test or a science test before before she sits the test, she will actually perform worse on that test than she could have just because society kind of says that that's how you're supposed to perform. And so the simple act of actually putting an F on your paper could result in you doing worse. And this is very, very well documented for the last sort of 25 years. And it's been done with, for instance, African-American uh, children yeah, and point, different minority point, groups. Point to the bad doll. That's it. That's it. And we're sort of putting this out there already and um, and not giving them the opportunity. So it's not a it's not a level playing field. Yeah. And so just just for listeners who don't know that the the study that yes, I'm please. referring to is this study where they they take these young African American kids and then and then young white kids and the, you know they're like I don't know three or five years old or something and they hand them a african-american doll and a white doll and they say point to point to the bad doll and they point to both groups point to the african-american doll it's this horribly tragic mm-hmm. uh idea of how early this signaling gets internalized and that's that's one reason why i find these types of issues so important to to touch on because they are so ingrained into our into our culture that it is it is so threatening to uh, how we operate as a society. Um, so so I want I want to talk about completely. I want to talk about you know what you are doing because you know obviously this is this is something that drives you to activism and 
Um, one thing you've created is the Tech Girls Movement, and this is a movement to encourage more women to go into technology. What is the mission of the Tech Girls Movement? Yes, thank you. So the Tech Girls Movement really is about empowering the next generation of female technology leaders. And we are starting very young. And at the moment, I don't feel that we actually have a workforce that's capable of building the technology of the future. Uh, so by 2018, they're saying we won't have a quarter of the technology workforce that we actually need in general. So we certainly actually need more males to participate as well. But we need people more generally. And they're also saying in five years time, 75 uh, all uh, Sorry, um, seventy-five percent of jobs will require some kind of STEM skills. So anyone that's not participating in this is actually going to be get left behind. So for me, I've been researching in this area for say the last fifteen years, looking at women in industry and what are the barriers and challenges, looking at university students and why do they come and study technology, and then going back to schools and trying to understand, yeah, what are the motivators and and what are the barriers at that age, and certainly. The Tech Girls Movement is designed to target girls as young as possible. We originally started at, say, uh, 8 to 17, but I have young girls as young as 5 ordering books from the website. So we have a book called Tech Girls Are Superheroes, which is a free book we give out to schoolgirls across Australia at the moment. And the idea is showcasing women in STEM as superhero characters. So all of the women featured are women that I know who've inspired me personally um, from all around the world, and they do amazing things with science and tech every single day. So it's about showcasing those women as role models. They're accessible women, and we have people like Cheryl Sandberg who do a great job, but they're not very. She's not very accessible. So having local women who are available to actually mentor these girls and talk to them. And uh, the idea of superpower is not that we're good at everything, but it's about pulling out that one good th thing that we're good at when we need to. And we all have one thing that we that makes us different from everybody else. And I found that that really appeals to young girls, particularly because it's all about confidence. And even for women in the industry, it really ends up coming down to confidence. And if you get your confidence beat out of you enough times, you end up leaving. And there's only so many situations you can probably we put up with that in so trying to give girls resilience and confidence from a very young age around using technology and building technology so that hopefully they get past that sort of year to that eight or nine year old um, age point where the stereotypes kick in and the boys push the girls out of the way in the classroom and those kinds of things so that it sustains them over that length of time so again trying from a very young age to create a pipeline and giving girls an option to opt in rather than just automatically opting out and what I love about this book, the Tech, Tech Girls Are Superheroes book, is that this idea of technology being this mode of empowerment is is so it's so important. And and if you compare it, if you compare this idea to, for example, like Harry Potter. In Harry Potter, you have kids who have magic wands, and these magic wands empower them to do certain things. But if you con contrast the idea of the magic wand with the smartphone or the laptop, mm -hmm. you can certainly make things of the same magnitude of power with a laptop or a smartphone that you see these characters making with a magic wand in Harry Potter. So I think that it's a really good uh, w way of, of, of accessing the, the confidence meter uh, of, these, of these girls who, who get access to this book. So Tell me more about how you personally got the idea for the Tech Girls Movement. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and thank you for that. I've never had the analogy with Harry Potter before, and I actually really like that. And I think not so much the wand, even having a, a computer or a phone is actually even more tangible, so more real for young people. So it actually makes a lot of sense what you're saying. And, and personally, so, I would rather have a laptop than a stick of wood. Absolutely. It's so much more helpful. <laughs> Yes. Uh, So how did I get involved? Um, So I guess myself being one of a few girls in my own information technology degree at university, and there was sort of a handful of us and in a room full of two or three hundred students. And so we actually got together and beat the boys instead as our bit of way of getting through. But um, but I guess I felt that was a very lonely experience. And and the type of work that you can do in technology, there's so many opportunities. And I work from home much of the time. I travel quite a bit. I earn pretty good money. I get to be challenged every day in what I do. And for me, it's the most perfect way to spend my work time. And so I started teaching at university, so teaching the course that I actually completed myself. And I found in the first year, we were getting very few females coming through. So less than 5% in my class every every semester. And But what I found was the girls that did come through the course were doing, they did really, really well. They almost sort of topped the class. So it was a matter of saying, well, we're not getting them there. And of course, university isn't the only option. There are other ways to engage in tech. So going back to schools and actually giving girls choices and I guess I sort of look back and think what information would I like to give to my five-year-old self and I I didn't feel I had a lot of choices growing up and I think technology is is one of those democratized industries where everyone can kind of have a go and there's nothing really stopping you everyone has a computer now um, access to technology and the internet and really we don't really need much else so trying to get girls attention from a very young age and saying this is an awesome lifestyle come and join us like this is a great place to be and you can literally create your own future you can create the space where you want to work so i i decide who i work with when i work on what projects i want to work and and that's a really awesome place to be and i want young girls even if they don't want to come to university that's absolutely fine but know that they have choices so so the program that i run is, uh, alongside the book is called the search for the next tech or superhero which essentially is a youth entrepreneurship program so we partner with technovation in the u.s actually uh, and they run a global program so the technovation challenge and we're the regional ambassadors here in australia so we use their 12-week curriculum which teaches girls practical hands-on skills how to build an app so they have to find a problem in their local community that they want to solve they have to do some research how other people have tried to solve that problem then they have to design their own solution and actually build a prototype in app inventor and by the end of the 12 weeks they pitch their idea so they have to do a pitch video and post it on youtube a little business plan and a few other things but again they have something really tangible at the end of that that they can come away with and feel like they've really achieved something and we have prizes and a big showcase event and we do maker spaces and a bunch of great things and for them to say wow i was part of this and i did a pretty good job and i think that's pretty cool so i want to talk more about the the specific tactics that you take in order to run this organization. I think there are probably people listening who are part of a of an organization, a, a, a social, so an organization with a social mission uh, involved in technology. I know we've had a number of them on the show. Um, you know, the, I, I when when you said uh, when you said that there were these you know these extremely low turnouts, it reminded me of an interview. We did with Sarah Allen a while ago. She runs something called Rails Bridge and Bridge Foundry. Mm-hmm. And she mentioned a very similar experience of just this continual, um, you know, like 33 to 1 ratio of guys mm. to girls. Um, 
but so what are the, what are some of the steps you take on a day to day basis that uh, you know when when you're running the tech girls movement that help you fulfill your mission? What an excellent question. You're a great interviewer. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so well, at the moment we are running the competition. So it's a 12-week program. We've extended it four extra weeks because we had so many girls who wanted to enter a little bit late. So we have nearly 500 girls across Australia now competing in this national competition. This is only our third year. We had 18 in the first year, 132 last year. Now we've grown to 500 girls this year. So we have girls in teams who are working through the program and I match each of them with a mentor. So the mentor from industry literally meets the team one hour per week online. So they can be from anywhere in the world, essentially as long as they're on the same similar time zone and they actually meet with their team each week. So I myself am mentoring 10 teams. So we have, I think, 130 teams this year. I've got 10 across two schools. So I go into the classroom and actually spend time with the girls going around and answering questions, helping them refine their their problem. I mean, even just defining the problem is a really difficult thing to do. And and that's why I'm, I have a little issue with um, – I don't mind the idea of teaching everyone to code, but I think it's really important to teach them that we need to have a good problem that we want an important problem to solve first. And I hate seeing technology built for technology's sake and technology, a solution looking for a problem. That's not the way we should be building technology and using our efforts. So really it's about educating young people, um, find the problems in the world that you want to solve, and then let's find a practical way of actually solving them. So I spend a lot of time talking with mentors and teachers, um, presenting um, at conference, uh, education conferences and things to really spread the word about practical things we can do in the classroom. And I, I just did a blog post last week on how to beat stereotype threat in the classroom. And part of that is actually about building some of our, or rewriting some of our technology history with the women that we talked about before. Um, and they're just a, a, a very start of, of what we're talking about with women in history around STEM. But I think building that into the curriculum and getting people talking more about that as a conversation and it shocks me how many people i speak to constantly who've never heard of ada lovelace like the first programmer in the world yet everyone talks about programming and coding and this kind of stuff so i think that's really sad so um it's about educating people on a daily basis i spend a lot of time on social media trying to get the good word out about um i mean for instance we have a, a crossword of women in stem history so we invite people to come and do the crossword and see how much they know and and it's amazing when people realize they actually know very little about such an important part of the world that we live in today. I want to talk more about your day-to-day um, work, which is you have a company called Adroit Research, which you founded to train people in improved qualitative research software and methods. Could you explain what that term qualitative research means? Mm-hmm. So qualitative research relates to unstructured data. So in the world we live in now with so much big data, essentially, um, something like I think 85% of the data that's out there is actually unstructured. So how do we make sense of all of that kind of data? So, for instance, um, I work a lot with researchers. Uh, I teach I teach a very specific software package for research, which allows people to manage that kind of unstructured data. So, for instance, I have uh, working on a project where we've been analysing tweets um, 
at, at a conference over three days where we have something like 18,000 tweets. Now, what do you actually do with that other than numbers? We want to make some sense and the meaning behind what's actually going on. So I guess qualitative is in, op- in opposition to quantitative, which is where we talk about numbers and counting things. And that's a very useful method to understand the world, but it only is half of the picture. So qualitative is, qualitative is really where we ask the why and the how type questions to say, okay, well, these are the numbers of how many technical people we have in the industry, for instance, um, men and women. So why is that happening? So qualitative techniques allow us to ask those underlying questions. And for me, I'm a researcher. So I've been a researcher for a really, really long time. And a lot of my research has been focused on interventions for girls around technology and trying to understand um, what are the trigger points. So for instance, we run an event in Victoria called Go Girl Go for IT, which is every two years we get 1,500 girls on campus at the university at Deakin and we um, give them a really great day exposing them to all awesome things about technology and then we evaluate that event. And so we've been evaluating that over the last 10 years. We had something like 10,000 surveys from the girls and we've been trying to look for some patterns around we have this group of girls who are interested, what do we can we do with them to really maximise our opportunity? Because half the p- battle is getting them interested. The fact that when we get them onto campus, we've found 80% of them are actually interested by the end of the day. So how can we maximise our efforts and really engage them on a longer-term basis? And that's where the book comes in. So they get to take the book home, talk to their parents. We need their parents' buy-in, um, talk to their teachers, share it with their friends. They, we, we need support from all around. And then they can join the competition and then they can go to a coding day and really keep the momentum going. I think it's absolutely key. So talking about this qualitative research approach. So, for example, uh, let's say you're looking at tweets or you're looking at survey data. So in some sense, these types of data, they are unstructured, like you said. But in, in another sense, it seems like you can impose structure on them. Like a tweet has up to 140 characters it's it consists of uh, you know alphanumeric characters. Uh, there's you know there's mentions. Uh, so there is some structure on it. So what what does that what do you it, when you're when you're performing qualitative research when you're working with a client or a set of researchers are is by qualitative research are you are you taking things that feel qualitative and attaching quantitative notions to them or give me a a better idea of of how that research progresses uh yeah that's a really good question that you ask and um i guess in some way you're not you're not putting you are putting structures but i guess it's more around themes and and understanding rather than uh, metrics and numbers so usually we apply those numbers to bigger data sets whereas usually with qualitative data we deal with smaller data sets so it might be we go and interview 30 people in a particular situation to get some insight into what's happening within that situation and so that's when we really get to delve deep and ask more detailed questions beyond the what and the and the 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 what and the when and to say well that what's the how and the why as to how all that's coming together so for instance i think tweets is probably um maybe not the best example in this instance because it is big data usually and we do look at it quite quantitatively but we what we do with say big data like that is we do look at it quantitatively first 
because we count what seems to be important and what patterns are there. Once we see those big patterns, then we start to delve in uh, and do some qualitative analysis to understand the underlying meaning behind it. So, for instance, I have a client who's looking at tweets about how do people tweet about God, for instance, for his PhD. And he's looking at different times of the year, for instance, Christmas and Easter, but actually looking from different countries how are people using different terms and what, what is the meaning behind that? So it goes beyond the numbers. Uh, it allows you not only to count but to think about what counts and to get a bit more understanding of the underlying meanings behind things and people's opinions and perceptions and points of view. Okay, I understand. So uh, when, when we're talking about your background, you got a PhD in information systems and a bachelor's in information technology you could have followed any number of paths. Um, your career sort of wound in this interesting direction, and you ended up with a career that you're really happy with. And I think there are a lot of listeners who maybe they're you know they're they're in a technology job and maybe they're not entirely happy with it, and but they're not sure which direction to go in. They're not sure what they should focus on, um, and. I mean, maybe this gets into like the discussion of entrepreneurship or something, but how do you, how did you navigate that, you know, the, the potential space of futures that, you know, you were faced with when you, when you got your PhD, you were done with the last mile of graduate school that you could have, <laughs> could have gone down, you know, how, how have you assessed this, this question of what you should do with your life? <laughs> what a profound start to the day. So it's early morning here in Australia. And um, <laughs> you're absolutely right that I think I ask that question every day, to be honest. I'm not sure I've worked out what I want to do in life yet. Um, but from, at the moment, I really do enjoy what I do. And you're right. I have made some somewhat non-traditional choices. Um, I mean, going to university studying IT in itself was not traditional, not expected. I'm the first person in my family to actually finish university, so um, was not expected to go down that path at all. Um, then I did an honours degree. I went to work for a while and decided to do a PhD, and I realised um, I was doing a lot of research and realized if I actually wanted to run my own research teams, I had to do a PhD. So I was really practical about it. And I, I chose to do it at a time when I had a really great topic. I had great supervisors and I had some funding support to actually get me through that. So I didn't jump in straight after my undergraduate. I, I left some time to really work out what I wanted to do. And by no means did I take an easy path with my PhD. I studied, studied illegal file sharing communities in Australia. And so this is something that is very taboo very difficult to get through our ethics in the university and just difficult to do the research in general. But I knew that if I was going to do a PhD, I, I didn't want to just tick a box. I wanted Okay, to sorry. Something. So illegal file, file sharing is around the time when you were in school. Was that like Kazaa and Napster or what are we talking about here? So we're talking, say, nine eight, nine years ago. So um, actually probably 10 years ago I started. And yes, those technologies were around, but I was looking at more of the secret underground communities where there's actually a whole lot more going on. It's much more sophisticated. And for me, being a systems person, they were really interesting systems. So they were very organized, um, lots and lots of rules to participate, yet it was all completely illegal. So for me, this was quite an appealing place to go and spend some time as a researcher and observe and, and try to document because it was a particular 
type of community that sits underneath all the other communities that we tend to know about. Like most people don't know these communities exist. So for me to be able to not expose them, but to be able to learn from them, because I found they were very, very sophisticated. And I'm sure many of your listeners probably know the types of communities that I'm talking about. Um, they're not so, so available anymore because the types of technologies have changed. But certainly at the time, um, it was something the community I studied had, I think it was about 1300 people. And I got access to one that had 10,000 people um, and that kind of thing. So we're talking not insignificant numbers. So, um, And to be honest, I actually found it quite difficult to publish that research after I finished my PhD because, again, it was something that it was very, very specific. And I found particularly in, in the US, it was sort of, well, that's you're talking about illegal behavior, so we're not that interested. Whereas I went to Europe and they're like, wow, this is cutting edge stuff. We want to know more and winning awards and things. So I guess I didn't make things easy. And I guess what that taught me is I didn't really want to be a full-time academic um, just because I found I was quite limited. I felt like my wings had been cut a little bit being in that academic space. And I felt I now had the qualifications to go out and share that knowledge with others. So um, building up my expertise in methodology as a qualitative researcher as well through that time, I decided to set up my own business. And actually, I am a researcher still. I still have research teams and I deal with researchers every single day, but I get to choose on what level I want to do that. But I get to actually advise them in ways that I get access to so many more researchers than I ever would as an academic just because I find them in a time of need and when I can help them and I feel like I do much more good than if I was being a full-time academic. So um, so I, I think for me, I did really struggle for quite some time. Can I be somewhat of an academic and also an entrepreneur? And I think I've finally found a way that I can do both. And I want to share with everyone out there listening that, yes, you can do both and, and be respected in both areas. And it is a lot of hard work, but we all work hard all the time. It's about the types of choices that you make. So I'm quite specific in the research projects that I still work on and where I try to publish and I work with interesting people. For me, one, that's my, one of the most important things. But then also putting that research into practice. So I find they inform each other very well. The research that I've been doing around girls in technology and women in tech, that definitely feeds into what I'm doing in the tech girls movement. So for me, it's sort of the tech girls movement's in the middle and everything feeds into that. And I get to help researchers every day, which I absolutely love. So you researched this gray market downloading uh, environment. It sounds like something out of a chapter of Freakonomics. And, <laughs> and you parlayed the knowledge of that unique activity into your own entrepreneurial venture. And, you know, I find it quite interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of what is the generalizable lesson there? Is the generalizable lesson that people should just focus on what they find interesting and and pray that it works out or, or that they should constantly be looking for a way to leverage their passions into something that they enjoy full time as an entrepreneurial venture? Like what, what is the solution here? Because, you know, I, I think that like we're, we're obviously moving towards this economy where people have the opportunity to be increasingly entrepreneurial. And certainly for people who are technologists, it is increasingly unpalatable to work for a large bureaucratic organization. So What's the generalizable lesson here from your experience? Uh, awesome question. I think leverage, as you mentioned, is really important. And thinking about what are your core skills and what are you good at? And it's probably only now that I've realized I'm really good at talking and connecting people and, and sort of filling in the gaps. And, um, and so whatever that 
that environment lends itself to, I'm not quite sure, but I guess what I'm doing now is building community. And it's interesting because you're talking about my PhD, which was looking at communities, and now I'm building a community um, with the Tech Goals movement. And and I think there's a lot of similarities that cross over there as well. And I guess I, I didn't go out and just pray that it would all work. I'm, I'm, I have to be a bit more practical than that. Like everyone, we have to pay the rent, we have to get by, and I still want to go on holidays and do those kinds of things. So for quite a number of years, I was teaching one day a week at university, and that would at least supplement paying my bills. So then whatever other else I did in the week, if I didn't make any money out of my own company, well, at least I had that to fall back on and that would get me through. So uh, of course, I have a supportive partner as well. Um, But I think being really practical and having that regular income and then finding ways to spend your other time. But for me, it's all about partnerships and networking and meeting as many people and being open to opportunities. And I think if you're open to opportunities, people will come and they'll see that. And um, yeah, I guess bit of philosophy in that in but how to how does the universe reward us but i think it's about if you put good stuff out there good stuff will come back to you Hmm. so what advice do you have specifically for women in technology who are trying to figure out how to be more entrepreneurial I think find people that you can look up to and get advice from. I mean, we talk about mentoring, whatever you decide to call it. I mean, it could just be an informal chat with other women and men as well. But learning as much as you can, never thinking that you're ever the smartest person in the room and never being that person because um, there's always new things to learn. And I think really trusting in your own gut instincts as well. Now, I question mine very regularly, but I think – being a researcher, I'm always coming back to believe in the method. So if you put all of the right structures and things in place, and they call this serendipity essentially, but what serendipity means is if you put all of the right systems, processes, structures in place for things to happen, they will actually happen. So it's not like it just suddenly comes out of nowhere. It's because you've been working really hard in a concerted effort to towards something. So I think follow your passion absolutely because if we're working and not enjoying it, then I don't see what the point of that is. I'd rather probably be unemployed, I think. Um, but and, and giving back to community I think is really key and, and going to community and actually seeing how you can contribute is a really powerful way to build your own confidence and self-esteem. And, again, it all comes back to confidence and self-esteem. So believe in yourself. Talk to as many people as possible. Leverage those networks that are out there. There's some fabulous networks, particularly online now. We don't have to be in any particular place. Like for me, Twitter is an amazing community of people where I've met I, I sometimes meet people two years after we've been tweeting and then we hug and we spend days together like we've known each other for a really long time because that's the power of online networks, I think. So I think leverage them as much as possible. And I'd be active. Don't be don't be reactive. Be proactive. Mm. Yeah, the proactivity thing, that's a good piece of advice. And I find the the community aspect, building a community can be very uh, confidence-boosting. I've certainly found that in the podcast. I didn't expect to be building a community, but it, it, it's been very interesting because as I've done these shows, you know, pe- people start to listen, they subscribe, or they join the Slack channel and they, or they send me an email and they're like, Hey, you know, this really resonates with me. And it, you know, it's, it kind of emboldens me and it, and it makes me a little more confident in my own, my own you know, depiction of, of, or, or my own impression of how I see the world because other people give me feedback and they're like, Hey, you know, you said this thing and, and it makes a lot of sense to me. And so I think it's, that's why, you know, what you say about building community is so crucial because it's you know building a community you help the you help yourself 
for the reasons that I just exclaimed and the, what you had said before that. But you also you obviously obviously help the other people that are in the community, and they're all going to be networking with each other. So, like building a community is like probably a really really good place to start for anybody uh, thinking entrepreneurially. Absolutely. Or even engaging in a community that's already out there as a starting point. And to be honest, it's not something I ever really thought that I would be doing. And, um, and, but what I'm getting now is I'm getting mentors coming to me and saying they, they spent an hour with the, their, their, their team at school and it's one of the best hours they've had in their life. And for me, this just blows my mind. I mean, I know it's going to be a powerful experience for everyone involved, but I had no idea of the actual um, impact uh, on that level that it would have. And, and I feel just so proud that I've created an opportunity for that to happen and for young girls to, to have their own opportunities and choices. And certainly I didn't expect a lot of the things that have happened to me. I mean, uh, I met a grand duchess last year. I'm hosting, um, Baroness Susan Greenfield on Monday at an event here in Brisbane, <laughs> who's a neuroscientist, world leading expert in, um, how digital technologies are changing our brains. And she accepted an invitation because she's a real life superhero. And I just kind of pitched it to her. So, I mean, that kind of stuff I have 50 young girls coming along to hear her and her research. So for me, bringing those people together and making those connections, I, I just couldn't be prouder. And it's, it's the best, best reward of all. So I want to begin to draw to a close and ask you, like, how are things progressing? Do you, have you seen any statistics or studies that display how the involvement of women in technology is changing? Is it improving? Or is it getting worse? Or how is it changing? I think it's pretty stagnant and it's been that way for quite some time. So, I mean, even for, say, the last 20 years, the figure of the representation of women in the tech industry pretty much around the world is around 20% on average. Some countries better than others, some worse. You look at countries like Germany and the Netherlands where you think the figures would be much higher, they're around 8%, 8-10%. So it's not as obvious as it seems. Um, there are certainly pockets of good things happening. I know in the U.S. there's some really awesome things happening around, say, Harvey Mudd College with Maria Clara over there and um, Carnegie Mellon in the past and, and those kinds of initiatives. So having really, really big impact, but it's not widespread, unfortunately. And whether or not it translates to women being in the industry, well, hopefully. So really the only way I see the industry is going to change is if we get a critical mass of, say, 30% women at a minimum. Once you get that critical mass, then there's enough people to actually instill change on a wider level. So there's a, there's a joke that people say that we will have, a, we will have true equality in the tech industry when we have as many mediocre women as we have mediocre men. Now, I don't, I don't mean to offend anyone with that, but what it says is that most women who are in the tech industry at the moment are actually quite exceptional. They've fought to be there. They're feeling quite confident in their abilities and not everyone has that. So we need to need to get more into that situation so we can start to have real change. So sadly, I don't know that we've had a lot of um, change in the last few years. I know after the figures came out of Silicon Valley what, about a year and a half ago when out of Twitter and Google and Facebook and so on about how many women and minorities in their tech industry, I know that a lot of those companies are really trying to do things now and got diversity strategies in place, but I guess it will take a few years before they start to show. But even still, I have women saying they're the only person in their development team, they're the only woman, I mean, in the development team, and that's not a nice place to be, so I haven't seen big impact yet but i'm hoping the fact that we're using technology every day it's underlying everything we do we we have to make it part and making young people know the difference between not just using tech but building tech and that's where we need to be so and knowing that everyone has a place a role to play and we need all kinds of people so i think education we need to keep doing that we need to 
give women in general more confidence and and teach everyone about unconscious bias so that um, we can start to make real change. And I'm sad I can't really report on much change at the moment, but I hope if we do this again in a couple of years' time, we've got more to report. Yeah, hopefully. We had we had Google, uh, somebody from Google on the show recently, and they cited a statistic where in the 1980s, it was something like 30, uh, was it 38% of of STEM and uh, computer science graduates were women, and more recently, it's like eight eighteen percent or sixteen percent mm-hmm. or something. That's like half, and it's like it's like a pretty scary if it's actually getting worse rather than getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so to conclude, how can someone who is listening to this podcast contribute to this movement? I think most of the listeners are white males. So, how can how can a random white male or, or it, I mean, generally anybody. How can anybody listening to this podcast contribute to the movement that that we need to attain, where we have more women involved in technology? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent question. And I think, well, firstly, if you want to get involved directly with the Tech Girls movement, um, we're always looking for funding to keep our programs going. You can buy some books, um, send to all of your young female relatives and things like that. So techgirlsmovement.org. Um, or I think in general, it's about if you've got a female colleague who possibly is, is in the minority in the workplace, um, inviting her to um, a gathering, it might be, or encouraging her to participate in a meeting or, or pointing to her in a meeting to actually share her point of view and um, getting her to lean in if we're going to use that kind of term. I think it's about even young young people. So asking young girls particularly what is their favorite book what kind of change do they want to see in the world we often conflate women particularly with what they look like in their appearance and whereas men it's often more about qualifications and expertise so i think just being a bit more aware of the unconscious bias and um even from a very young age i have a, a two-year-old of a friend of mine and she's she says i can't be a builder like daddy because i'm a girl so i mean i don't know where she's getting these messages from at two years old but they, they're getting there so i think trying to be aware that this is happening and counteract it and give lots of positive role models and and talk about women in history and science and tech and the awesome stuff that they do and just be a bit more aware yourself about the impact that you have on other people's lives and how you can really yeah one little thing each day can make a big difference okay janine well thanks for coming on the show and thanks for all the great work that you do um it's been great having you uh on for an interview thanks jeff it's been an awesome interview i appreciate it